A word before we get started with today's episode of NTM Talk. While it may go without saying, it's important to remember that all views expressed in this podcast are the opinions based on the experiences of the participants and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have questions related to your own health, please contact your provider. Hello, and welcome to another episode of NTM Talk, where we have in-depth discussions on non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease and bronchiectasis. I'm Dr. Colin Swenson. And I'm Dr. Wendy Drummond. And today, Wendy and I are going to discuss treatment of NTM lung disease. This is especially timely, Wendy, because of the new treatment guidelines that were just released over the summer. I think we we talked about those during our last episode. We did. And so I think that that maybe provided a little teaser for our audience of what we're going to talk about today. We whet their appetites. Yes. Yes. To talk it's more the t- about treatment. It's the talk. It is Not the, the talk. talk we have to have with our kids, but a different talk. <laughs> a different type of talk, exactly. <laughs> different type of talk. And, some, and sometimes the talk can be a little bit complicated and, and prolonged, and we're going to talk about that too. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So we did discuss the, the, the new updated 2020 guidelines, but we should also talk about what was new in those guidelines, but we should probably also talk about what was the same, and that is the frontline medical treatment, which is almost identical to the 2007 guidelines. Uh, Wendy, do you want to go over that frontline treatment? Yes, of course. I'd be happy to. Our our typical approach in treating patients with established NTM lung disease, so this is someone who we think meets the criteria based on the guidelines that we discussed on our prior episode. That's right. So the, the, the radiographic presentation, the clinical symptoms, and also the microbiologic data, the culture data. Exactly. And, you know, we do spend a lot of time reviewing all of that data with our patients. And I, I do want to make uh, some point in talking about the radiographic presentation, because I think it's important when we talk about what initial therapy will be, because when we talk about the standard treatment regimen, which really has not changed a whole lot, and we will talk about some of those caveats, it's really based on someone who has fibronodular disease on their CT scan. So really what we're going to talk about next is focusing on our treatment approach, uh, of that patient population who fits into that category as to, as opposed to someone who has cavitary disease, for example. So I think it's important to set that stage for our, for our listeners. That's right. Yep. So the nodular bronchiectatic phenotype versus the fibrocavitary. So we're going to be spending probably more time on the nodular bronchiectatic MAC phenotype than on the fibrocavitary, only because there are so many more patients um, with MAC with that, with that form of the disease. Well, that's correct. And I think um, it may even behoove us in this episode to say that it's probably better to even parse out our discussion of MAC disease as opposed to our discussion for mycobacterium abscessus group and those specific subspecies, mainly because the treatment is actually very different. And I think that mm, may even very. be an episode in itself. Yeah, that is very different and uh, uh, much more convoluted because oftentimes we're talking about IV medications in addition to oral medications. Exactly. And that's not to say that we don't employ the use of inhaled and or IV medications in our patients uh, who have MAC, you know, the, the subspecies that fall with, under that MAC umbrella, for example, Mycobacterium avium. But mm-hmm. um 
just just important for our listeners to know that the treatment is quite different and and really the focus in this episode today will be on the treatment of mac and and as we were introducing the beginning the the baseline treatment approach is starting with three drug oral therapy in those patients who have symptoms and who have that fibronodular phenotype on their ct scan now one thing I, I like to talk about with my patients, and I really set the stage early on, is that you know we do not treat this infection and this disease process with monotherapy. And what I mean by that is using a single antibiotic. And I think one of the most common pitfalls that we can see uh, in in, in other treatment approaches uh, with these patients is the use of macrolide monotherapy or, for example, using azithromycin by itself. And I just want to emphasize that this should never be done. And and more importantly, they shouldn't be using a thambutol or rifampin as a single agent. But even more importantly, um, our, our patients need to know that they should not be put on azithromycin or clorithromycin monotherapy. Now, never by themselves. Never by themselves. Exactly. Because of the, because of the risk for, for resistance to the macrolide. So when we say macrolide, we're talking about either azithromycin or chlorithromycin. Those are the two main agents. And if you lose that class of medication, eradicating the MAC becomes very, very, very difficult um, to the point where um, oftentimes we're not able to eradicate the infection. Exactly. This is considered to be the backbone of MAC treatment. So first and foremost, it is the backbone of treatment. And what we know from a variety of different studies is that there is some prognostic significance to losing that macrolide. And what I mean by that is that people do not do as well um, throughout the course of treatment and our ability to cure or get this uh, disease process under control is substantially undermined uh, in those patients who do have who have developed macrolide resistance. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And so the the new guidelines for that reason do still recommend the three drugs as opposed to to uh, to one or two. So the three drugs that we would be talking about, of course, are the macrolide, which is the azithromycin or chlorithromycin, but azithromycin is is generally recommended in the guidelines over chlorithromycin only because azithromycin has fewer side effects. And there's also some literature to show that there's less resistance formation with azithromycin over chlorithromycin. Yeah, it's really important to keep in mind that it really has a fewer drug interactions as well. So um, mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. across the board, as opposed to the chlorithromycin, and you did mention the side effects. Now, a lot of times patients will come to my office and they will already be on the chlorithromycin. That's typically administered twice a day. And a lot of these patients will complain about uh, of dysgeusia or change in their ability uh, to taste things, or they ha- they'll they complain of a tinny type taste, like it tastes metallic. Um, and this can actually be a really limiting side effect for some patients because they don't want to eat. And we're, we've talked about in a number of different episodes how it's so important that our patients maintain their weight because one of the main problems is low BMI. So um, so that's that's really an important thing to keep in mind. And I typically do transition those patients to azithromycin if they're on chlorithromycin 
uh, when they come to me. So do I. So do I. Um, because as you said, weight loss, cachexia, anorexia, those are are features of this disease. And we know that uh, patients with, with lower body weight tend not to fare as well as patients who have a normal BMI. And clarithromycin, some of my patients have told me that it almost tastes like they've been sucking on a, on a tailpipe from a car. Just leaves a really, metallic, <laughs> just a really nasty metallic taste in their mouth where they just don't want to eat anything. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe good for, for, a, for a diet regimen, a crash diet, but certainly, certainly not for 18 months. No, no, exactly. So uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, because we're talking about azithromycin, and, and I think um, certainly I, I really val value your opinion on this as a pulmonologist, is that I've had patients that I co-manage with my pulmonologists who may have other underlying processes, like some type of bronchiolitis or bronchiolitis obliterans, and they have a history of NTM disease either in the, the remote past or they've perhaps had positive sputum cultures but never required treatment and, and maybe have not had any recent positive sputums. The pulmonologist will call me and say, you know what? I really want to put this patient on chronic azithromycin therapy because I really want to take advantage of some of the anti-inflammatory features of this medication. Do you have a problem with me putting them on it? So it would be macrolide monotherapy, but not for the purpose of treating the infection. It's for the purpose of treating the primary lung disease that the pulmonologist is managing. Do you have any comments about that, Colin? Because really, I, I tell the patient, you know, I think that this is safe to do this. You have had any positive cultures in some time, and the pulmonologist thinks this is really important. But guess what? We're going to monitor you very closely on treatment with the macrolide. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to to lie. Um, this this comes up very regularly for me as well, either as a treating pulmonologist or as someone treating uh, NTM lung disease, where I get a referral from a provider who wants to start azithromycin for, as you say, the anti-inflammatory or immunomodulatory purposes, and it is very effective in that respect. If the patient is not chronically colonized with with NTM, particularly with MAC, then I am usually okay starting it with the caveat that we regularly check the patient's sputum yep. for NTM organism. Absolutely. So usually every every six weeks to three months, try to get a sputum sample to make sure that that MAC has not um, has not reared its ugly head again. If it has, generally at that point, I, I tell them to stop the azithromycin just in case we have to end up treating it. Exactly. The other situation that I may find myself using a macrolide like azithromycin in my patients who do have a history of bronchiectasis is in some of my patients who have just chronic refractory pulmonary pseudomonas infection. These patients mm -hmm. may or may not have had NTM in the past, but I think the same thing applies is that when we move forward with this therapy in our patients with chronic pseudomonas infection, because we there are very specific reasons. I'm not going to get into too many of the details for the purposes of this talk, and we can certainly talk more about it when we talk about co-infections, when we specifically talk about uh, patients who have a history of NTM, bronchiectasis, who maybe have other pathogens such as MSSA or pseudomonas. But um, we know these patients can benefit from macrolides use, but once again, it's it's really a matter of underscoring the fact that they have not recently isolated NTM. We don't think they have active NTM disease, and we 
feel comfortable under close monitoring using it in that context. That's right. That's right. Unfortunately, what I see a lot of times happening is a, 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 either an infectious disease physician or a pulmonologist will start azithromycin chronically. So like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday for the um, anti-pseudomonal effect or for that anti-inflammatory effect. And it really does help the, the, the pseudomonal exacerbation rate. But the problem, of course, is that uh, that we, we need to be checking those surveillance cultures, and that's oftentimes not getting done. And so I just, you know, I can't emphasize the importance um, enough that if you are being treated with azithromycin monotherapy for your underlying bronchiectasis, just please make sure that your provider is also checking your sputum to make sure that MAC is not being cultured. Yes, I think it's really important. Um, and that's why I wanted to highlight it for our listeners, because I just think that this will help them advocate for themselves. I think a common thing that you and I both see, um, and this is this is not a criticism of these amazing family medicine physicians and internists out there, but unfortunately, a lot of times our patients with bronchiectasis, um, you know, will will happen to see one of the one of their primary care physicians um, for what might be a routine exacerbation. Sputums may or may not be checked, but they'll put them on azithromycin for treatment of the exacerbation. Yep. And I just want to emphasize with our listeners that that is a no-no. Feel free to tell them no, or have them call um, either your pulmonologist or your friendly infectious disease specialist, and we can come up with alternative treatment approaches. But this is where it's really important that if our patients are having an exacerbation, that the patient does submit, submit a sputum specimen to the lab. And we'll talk about this in a, in a different episode. But so we know exactly what we're treating. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Wendy. Absolutely. Uh, exacerbations are oftentimes treated with a Z-pack just because they're so easy. You literally send it into the pharmacy. It's a five-day course. There are minimal side effects. And so I understand the convenience of it. So I oftentimes tell my patients the exact same thing that you just said, which is if you have an exacerbation and they, and they want to send in azithromycin, just say no. Say no. <laughs> That's exactly right. I give my patients a number of sputum specimen cups so that you know, they can drop something off at the lab when they do, uh, you know, feel like there's been a change in their baseline symptoms. And um, so that's very valuable. And and I do tell them that it's not as if we're going to withhold care. You know, if they if they call me first, let's say they, they don't call their primary physician. If, if I get the first call and they, and, you know, you and I you and I both know we ha have these long-term patients that are very reliable, mm -hmm. and we know that if their symptoms change, there's something going on. Um, if they're really sick, I may put them on some type of empiric treatment based on what their prior sputum specimens mm -hmm. have grown in the past. Mm -hmm. For example, some people grow staph, and so, and I'm talking about methicillin-susceptible staph aureus or MSSA. So, in all likelihood, I might dispense two, three days of an anti-staphylococcal antibiotic pending their culture results. And then I can always modify therapy once those results are back if needed. I don't necessarily dispense 10 to 14 days or 21 days of antibiotic until I know what we're treating. 
And that's why it's so important to get these regular sputum samples uh, at our patients' appointments at regular intervals so that we know what it is that they're chronically colonized with, so that when there is an exacerbation, we can, we can better target antibiotic treatment for their particular bugs. Right. The other thing I want to make a comment about, and I guess this is the infectious disease specialist in me, is that you know a lot of patients have a history of a penicillin allergy. And this is one reason why a lot of physicians will use a macrolide or azithromycin as their go-to uh, exacerbation medication, uh, especially if people do have a history of a penicillin allergy. What I, another thing I do to educate my patients is a, you know, get to the root cause of that allergy because there's a huge percentage of patients out there who are told as children that they had something happen as a child. I don't know what the reaction was, but I was told it was a penicillin allergy and. You know, a lot of times we'll either send them for skin testing or we'll rechallenge if we think it's a low risk situation. But I do emphasize to my patients that there's more than one way to skin the proverbial cat, that there's a number of different oral agents that we can use to treat exacerbations that are non macrolide options. So, once again, it's just part of that, of completing that education with our patients and, and to help them advocate for themselves. This is this should not be the go-to drug for a pulmonary exacerbation, azithromycin. And that is what we're doing here. We're trying to educate our listeners so that they can better advocate for themselves. Yes. I'm, I'm going to transition a little bit. You know, we, we've been talking about the fact that, you know, we start standard treatment with three oral medications. We've mentioned the macrolide, azithromycin, as, a, as the primary back drug, and I think we briefly mentioned ethambutol and rifampin. But before we really start talking about those, those two other drugs, I did want to sort of ask you about when, when you sit down in your office and you're, you know that you're going to start someone on treatment, or at least you're strongly considering it, I want to hear about what factors you take under consideration and what you talk about in that initial talk, because I certainly always assess the patient's desire for treatment and their ability. We talk about underlying medical conditions, comorbidities, other medications that they're on. What, what are other things that, that you would talk about in that discussion? Well, I think that patients first and foremost need to understand that he or she will be taking three or more drugs in some cases for more than a year. And that deserves, as, as you alluded to, an in-depth conversation right up front before any medications are started. Um, the question is, you know, is the, are the disease symptoms severe enough to offset potential side effects in the very long course of treatment that we're describing? Does he or she have access to the types of monitoring services that are going to be required during the course of treatment, such as um, hearing tests, vision tests, uh, blood tests, looking at liver function and, and blood count and so forth, and also to look at other medications that could intera interact adversely with the antibiotics. These questions are all very worthy of discussion before embarking on treatment, and so Part of the initial investment up front is, is spending that time, taking that time to discuss uh, with the patient what he or she is uh, wanting to get out of, out of treatment. Yeah, everything that you said is so incredibly important. And what I typically do is I block out a, a good block of time. 
to have the treatment discussion. This is not a 20 minute visit. No, it is not. And I, I think you're aware of that too. Like it's just very difficult. You know, you need the, the time to be able to, to review all of this with the patient. I actually, when, when I know that I'm going to be having this talk, I, I do encourage them to bring someone with them, that second set of ears, if possible, you know, just to have someone else listening in because we're actually delivering a lot of fairly complex and multi-layered information. And, and I always emphasize, you know, this is not the first or last time we're going to talk about this. You know, we've got a system set up in clinic for nursing support and, and that, you know, all of those other things that our patients are going to need to help support them through this treatment journey. And then you reference this, but I always ask them, what are their treatment goals? You know, what do they want to achieve with therapy? Because, um, you know, some people will say, well, I just want to be able to get through a meeting without coughing, or I don't want to scare my grandchildren with my cough anymore. Or, you know, there's there's a lot of different treatment goals that people may have. Some, you know, some people are so fixated, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but they just want their sputum cultures to be negative. Some people want to see an improvement in their CT scan. Most people want all three, symptomatic improvement, uh, microbiologic conversion. And what I mean by that is they want to see, they do not want their sputums to test positive for NTM bacteria anymore. And, and radiographic improvement too, although I think there's a lot of nuances that we'll talk about either later in this episode or in a subsequent episode that we may see a CT scan that looks a little worse in the interim, but they're clinically doing a lot better. And, you know, so there's a lot of different things that we look at in terms of answering that question. Well, how do we know treatment's working? How do we assess my response to treatment? But I really try to talk about all of these things up front so that we can set expectations and so that everyone's on the same page. And that it's not a simple linear process. So we'd love to say that, you know, we start this treatment, the three drugs, and you just automatically feel better and you continue to get better and your your sputum converts to negative and your, your chest CTs, you know, completely, uh, you know, improve. And we know that that's not the case. Some of this can be very, uh, very frustrating for the patient because we may get an initial improvement but then and, and clearance of the sputum, but then say, you know, two months, three months down the road, there may be another positive culture. And so there are a lot of there are a lot of bumps to this road. It's not a completely linear improvement in some cases, although obviously uh, in other cases we're, we're able to go that direction. Well, I- it's so important that you brought that up and and that we do emphasize that, that even if they do have a positive sputum along the way, that doesn't mean that treatment isn't working or somehow everything's been derailed or that it even resets the clock on the duration of treatment because it doesn't. You know, once again, it's taking into context, you know, how is the patient feeling clinically? What does their CT scan look like? Like all of those things are are so important. What's their pulmonary function? As you know, we've talked about that fifth vital sign in terms of their spirometry. Mm-hmm. Their FEV1. Is that is that FEV1 improving? So so I do explain I take the time to explain to them there's a lot of different things that we're gonna look at to to really assess uh progress through through their treatment course and culture conversion just being one of those things. But you, you already mentioned that treatment duration can vary. 
that it can be long and difficult. It can be anywhere from 12 to 18 months, depending on the time where they convert their sputum to negative, for example. It can. It can. We generally like to see it consistently negative by month six. Per the, the, the 2020 guidelines, and I think we discussed this in the last episode, if the sputum is still positive after six months, then that would be an indication to potentially escalate therapy to a fourth medication. And that fourth medication uh, would be, would be uh, liposomal uh, nebulized amicacin or aracase. Correct. And I usually bring that up in the first visit as well. Once again, anticipating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ahead you know, that, that, that six month time frame is a critical point. The, the other thing I emphasize too, is that, uh, you know, hopefully at this point, and, and presumably if you and I are primarily managing these patients and, and a lot of our very skilled pulmonary and ID colleagues out there, this is assuming that their bronchiectasis has been optimally managed as well, because once again, these people are not treated in a vacuum. Our patients are not treated in a vacuum. No, they're not. Underlying chronic lung disease with bronchiectasis, for example, or you know, you take care of a lot of cystic fibrosis patients, or, or whatever it is, um, they could have pulmonary fibrosis or rheumatoid arthritis. But speci- speaking specifically about bronchiectasis, at, at this point, I'm assuming okay, we've optimized management of their bronchiectasis. We've taken that as far as we can. So now we're going to treat the NTM and what are our expectations moving forward and how are we going to assess for improvement? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that we talked about airway clearance very early on and hit it pretty hard because airway clearance for bronchiectasis, for treatment of the underlying bronchiectasis, is key to treating the NTM infection as well. And so optimizing that bronchiectasis regimen is of paramount importance. Um, And preferably, we do that before embarking on the big three. Yes. And that's why I tell a lot of patients when they come in with their initial, when they come in for their initial consultation with me, um, you know, this may be someone who's been, um, it's usually someone who's been referred to me by one of the pulmonologists that um, I make it very clear that it, it usually takes two or three visits to get to a point where I can really determine if they even need treatment, um, mm-hmm. because sometimes mm-hmm. it requires a little bit of tweaking of you know what's going on with management of the underlying pulmonary disease, um, other other things that may come up that we that need to be addressed before we before we start treatment. I think you're saying what I'm thinking, Wendy, which is that we spend a lot of time invested during those first visits and a lot of foundation laying. Before we get to the nuts and bolts of anti-MAC antibiotics, we talk a lot about the role of underlying lung disease, which is oftentimes the main cause or susceptibility to the infection to begin with, but will make the patient susceptible to reinfection down the road. We've got to address that underlying uh, condition, whatever it is, and optimize it as best we can. Then there's the treatment itself, the big three medications for MAC, their side effects, their interactions with other drugs, the duration and timing of treatment. And you couple those things with prescribing treatment for the underlying bronchiectasis or lung condition, whatever that is, and you're talking about a lot of time that most primary care providers and community pulmonologists and infectious disease doctors simply don't have. I can then see why many patients show up in my clinic, and I'm sure yours as well, confused about what they're supposed to be taking, when they're supposed to be taking it, and of course, for how long. Yes. 
Yes, I'm definitely talking about those expectations up front. The other thing that that I tell patients is that, you know, once we Mm -hmm. get all three antibiotics on board, when we're starting with just a standard guideline-based regimen of azithromycin, athambutol, and rifampin, Mm. and I actually start them in a staged fashion, which I can describe in in a minute or two, but I do let them know that it's not necessarily, you know, in 72 hours, you know, all of a sudden your cough is gone and, and your energy's back and you're not losing weight that, you know, there, there's a chronicity to this disease and it also takes time for the antibiotics to get therapeutic, but also it can take several weeks to even months before people are really, really starting to feel significantly better. Absolutely. With treatment. Absolutely. It's and I think it's important to warn them about that. And maybe warn is the wrong word to use here, but but at least to, to highlight that possibility. Yeah, I think as you say, just counsel them about it. I mean, is I think if, I think information, I've said this before, information is is key up front. And that's why it's a little bit of investment in the beginning. But I think if the patient understands what what time course we're talking about, this is a long treatment course. It's a prolonged treatment course. Therefore, we don't expect you to feel better right off the bat. In fact, you might actually have some side effects that make you feel a little bit worse. But usually those side effects get better over time. And we can give you some, some medications to offset some of those side effects if absolutely necessary. Now, when I know that you mentioned staggering the start dates of the medication. I do the same thing. I tend to stagger the start dates of the big three medications. I, I tend to start with a Thambutol, um, and then a week after that, I start rifampin. And then the third week is when I start the azithromycin. And, the, and I know that there's a lot of variability among providers on this. I've, I've talked to a number of folks who treat NTM very regularly, and everybody's style is a little bit different. The reason I choose that is I want the azithromycin, the macrolide, to be last in line, only because I don't want the patient to take the macrolide on its own, like we were discussing at the beginning of this episode. I also like uh, to start it weekly just to get an idea of if there are side effects, which medication is causing the side effect um, and knowing what that side effect is. Yes, I I think this is a really good strategy. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of patients, it's like a a bomb's been dropped on them. They'll, They'll have all three drugs started at the same time. And then, and then if there are side effects and I, and I will say to our listeners out there that I have lots of patients who've started on all three drugs at the same time and they've done great. So this does, I am not suggesting that it is an automatic fail if all three medications are started at the same time, because that's simply not the case because everybody's body chemistries and genetics are so different in terms of how you metabolize any of these medications. So it can be very successful. But as Colin mentioned, I think it's just so important to have a good strategy established with your our patients and in introducing these medications so we know exactly which one is uh, causing side effects if side effects are being experienced. 
I'm going to outline really my approach. And I think a lot of this is just, you know, maybe my, my training bias of, of where I, where I learned to do this, but there's a lot, as Colin mentioned, there's a lot of different strategies that can be used and that there's no, I don't think there's any single strategy that's necessarily the best. Typically what I do is I start them, I, I tell my patients, you know, we're going to do this in alphabetical order. And I, I do this for a couple of reasons. One, I, I think it's easy for them to remember A for azithromycin, uh, E, ethambutol, and R for rifampin. So I do it in alphabetical order. I start the azithromycin first, and, and I understand you do it, it, it third. I, I, think, I think that the risk, and this is just my infectious disease perspective on this, that I think the risk for developing resistance in the time frame in which we're starting these medications is incredibly low. So I, I think there's relatively low risk of starting the azithromycin first and having it um, on its own, but I completely understand your thought process. I usually tell patients, patients wait five to seven days in between starting the second medication. So I start with the azithromycin first. We discuss the possibility that there may be some gastrointestinal side effects, and that can range from some low-grade nausea, occasional cramping, very rarely vomiting. One thing that I do emphasize is that these symptoms typically get better over time and usually go away over the first several days. Now, there are rare patients uh, who just have poor tolerance, and I would say, um, or who just may be very sensitive to any antibiotic. Uh, one of the strategies that I also use, and once again, I, I try to give patients choices because I think in a situation where they feel like they're, they're losing uh, their ability to make choices and approaching to treatment as I say, look, you know, we recommend that you take these medications at night because people tend to experience fewer side effects. They can sleep it off. But, you know, some people want to want to take, you know, the azithromycin and the ethambutol in the morning and they take the rifampin at night. There's a lot of different ways to do this. So, so I would say the most common side effects uh, that patients will experience with azithromycin can be gastrointestinal. Those do get better over time. Vast majority of patients don't experience them at all. The other thing that we have to take into consideration with azithromycin is um, patients who may have an underlying cardiac history, who may be on other medications um, or a history of cardiac arrhythmias, you know, we're always going to do our due diligence to review medication lists, assess for any potential interactions or any other agent that can prolong what we call a QT interval. It doesn't mean that we can't use the medication. It just may mean that we get EKGs uh, over a period of time to assess patients' heart rhythms. I've had patients uh, who've been on three QT prolonging agents at the same time because they had limited treatment options and they've done just fine. So it's, it's one of those things that your physicians will be monitoring. Do you have anything else to add about the azithromycin? No, I think I think that's it. The oh, the only other thing I can think of with azithromycin is that some people develop tinnitus or some some buzzing or humming in the ears, as well as sort of a muffled a, a muffled sensation of the hearing. And so it's important to point that out to your physician or your practitioner if if you develop that. Um, probably at that point, um, a hearing test or audiology would be would be warranted. Yeah, and it's it's a relatively rare side effect, but when you're doing this enough, uh, we do encounter this over time. So I, I think 
and that's something I always outline with my patients. So I'm glad that you brought it up that the, the tinnitus, which is the ringing, it can be a buzzing or a tinnitus equivalent, which may be uh, like fullness in the ear. That, that's what we call a tinnitus equivalent, where it's, it's instead mm-hmm. of the buzzing or the ringing, they just have a sensation of fullness. And so that would warrant further testing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you stop the antibiotic right away unless the side effect is incredibly severe because as we discussed, we, we try not to lose our macrolide if we can help it. But also so important to reach out to your physician or who's ever managing your, your NTM treatment because we need to know and to make the decision of whether to stop, continue, substitute, you know, all of those different options that come up with this. Yeah, let's let's talk also about ethambutol. So so ethambutol is the other agent that we that we typically use. Again, it's the first one that I start. It sounds as though it's the second one that you start. And for this medication, we mostly worry about ocular or eye side effects. And so for that reason, we generally have our patients follow up with um, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist to have regular vision testing. Yes. And this is incredibly important. And I do a lot of counseling in our with my patients, and I'm sure you do about this. That, and and one way that I help them remember this is E ethambutol E for eye. I think that that helps them remember that eye association. So, you know, patients can develop um, blurry vision or just decrease visual acuity. One of the things that I recommend is that they're consistently reading something with fine print every day, and that if they have two consecutive days of a, a decrease in their visual acuity or blurry vision, that they should hold the medication, number one. Number two, call my office. And they also need to get in touch with their ophthalmologist or optometrist who should be monitoring them while they're on treatment. So basically what I recommend is I I send my patients to ophthalmology to have their baseline evaluation. And then I work with the ophthalmologist, but I also leave it to their discretion as well of how frequently they want to do monitoring on the patient. So um, some patients, uh, if they have other eye issues, they may, you know, have be evaluated every three months. Some patients are every six months while they're on treatment. But there, I also do caution the patients that if they have ch- any changes in their vision, that they need to hold the medication, stop taking the medication, contact ophthalmology to get in and get evaluated right away. It's not something to mess with. I, I agree. And the same goes for changes in, in color perception as well. So if the patient starts to notice that there are changes in color perception, that's another reason to stop the medication and to contact uh, your, your provider as soon as possible. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. And one thing I, I want to mention too is that a lot of our patients, once they get started on treatment, they're so afraid of stopping any aspect of that treatment, especially you know once they start feeling better on treatment. I've had some patients who've continued to take the medication thinking that they don't want to derail their treatment, but I really try to educate them up front that even if we have to hold this medication this is not going to completely uh, set them back in the course of treatment, that there are other medications that we can substitute if needed. So really, I think putting that out there for them so that they don't take that option of continuing when maybe they ought not to do it. I completely agree. 
So besides the the the, the ocular ophthalmic uh, side effects with the thambutol, some of the other things that are a little less common include GI side effects. So this would be um, sort of you know nausea, uh, diarrhea, and sometimes we also like to check liver function testing as well as complete blood count because occasionally and again very rarely. Uh, a thambutol can affect the liver and it can affect the cell line. And we're going to do, we'll review monitoring in a little bit, but we're going to do routine monitoring on all of our patients at least every three months um, for the reason that Colin just mentioned. And we'll talk about rifampin in a little bit, but same thing, rifampin can be metabolized by the liver and very occasionally can cause uh, mild liver function tests, elevations, or uh, a mild hepatitis. So it's something that we do monitor over time. The other thing I wanted to mention with the thambutol with with respect to the, the derangement in vision is that in the vast majority of cases, if we stop the medication and after evaluation by the ophthalmologist, they determine that, yeah, we do think that this was optic neuritis associated with the ethambutol, then I, I want to reassure our listeners that in the vast majority of cases, the vision goes back to normal upon cessation of the drug. It's it's actually more unusual to have persistent vision problems after stopping the medication. And then the final side effect that I would mention, although this is incredibly rare, but I have seen it and I think really important for patients to watch out for is something called peripheral neuropathy. And that it can involve tingling or numbness of the feet or even the hands. And so once again, it's a reason to hold the medication and contact your managing provider physician and let them know right away. Thank you for mentioning that. It is extremely rare, but I have had some patients develop some peripheral neuropathy, um, usually in the form, like you say, of tingling of the feet or of the fingers. And so um, I'm glad you mentioned that. And once again, in the vast majority of patients, this will resolve over time once we stop the medication. So, and then there are rare circumstances in patients who, um, you know, may need treatment again down the road. And, you know, as a note to our patients, especially if you change providers, if you have had one of these side effects, if you've experienced any issues with these medications, really important to make your provider aware of that because uh, in many, many cases, we would not rechallenge with the ethambutol. And in some cases we do, especially if we, we thought the reaction was relatively mild, but uh, just really important to keep in mind. Now, the third medication that we typically use is a rifamycin or a rifampamycin. In this case, usually we use rifampin. And rifampin is, is another medication that can also cause primarily GI upset. So either nausea, bloating, diarrhea, decreased appetite. But again, this is something that tends to be very self-limited and tends to go away after about a month of treatment. But nonetheless, it does happen with enough frequency where we like to counsel patients upfront about those potential side effects. Rifampin also can interact with a number of other medications, and I'm sure, Wendy, you'll talk about that um, in a little bit more detail. But it can also affect the liver function, um, just very similar to the ethambutol. And so that's another reason that we do routine blood monitoring. That's exactly right. And one of the things uh, that I always, or try, I think I always, 
warn my patients about with this medication and keeping in mind, I'm trying to give these little mnemonics like rifampin red is it can cause the urine uh, to turn red or even orange. Uh, yeah, yeah, some of the point. secretions, uh, there've been some patients where their contacts change color. That's actually very rare, but something to keep in mind because it it, it can be very uh, upsetting to patients. They think that they have blood in their urine, but really it's just from the rifampin and it, this is not harmful. It's just just a side effect of the medication, but certainly uh, not harmful and really no symptoms are associated with that. The, one of the reasons that I, I referenced earlier that I start rifampin as the last drug is, as Colin mentioned, this one tends to be the major culprit in regards to side effects. And so you know, the vast majority of patients are going to do just fine on their azithromycin and ethambutol, or certainly as days go by, uh, they they have more of a tolerance to these medications. But rifampin, in my experience, is really the one that, that could potentially cause the most concerning GI side effects. A couple things about administration and, and take of rifampin. Um, I usually counsel patients to take this drug at night before they go to bed, uh, preferably on an empty stomach because that's going to optimize absorption of this medication. If patients do have uh, gastrointestinal upset and typically nausea is the most common manifestation of that, patients can take this with crackers and oftentimes that can really temper that side effect and it's not going to impair the absorption of the medication to any significant degree. Other clinical syndromes that or symptoms that you can very rarely see with rifampin is some patients do experience arthralgias. And what I mean by that is pain in the joints. Um, some people can have fevers. And this is typically a reason that we would stop this medication because it can be a fairly significant reaction. At those patients, we may see their platelets drop, and we can also see changes in their other cell lines, which is why we do monitoring with that complete blood count and, and differential every three months. But just know that these are much more rare side effects, and it may prompt discontinuation uh, of that medication in that context. As you mentioned, I generally tell my patients, just because of the absorption issue, to take rifampin by itself. Again, my practice tends to be to tell patients to take it first thing in the morning, 30 minutes before breakfast on an empty stomach. But absolutely makes sense for patients to take it at night instead, um, well after dinner, uh, to avoid any any side effects. I do tell them, though, that they can take it with, with a cracker or something very small if it upsets their stomach. But interestingly, most patients tell me that uh, if the nausea that they experience at the very beginning does go away after a couple of weeks of treatment. So it's important to remember that this tends to be short-lived. Yeah, and I think that's really the case with all three of these medications is that by introducing them one at a time, we're able to determine which uh, which medication might be uh, the, the source for any side effects, but it also gives them a chance to, uh, even if they have some symptoms early on, for example, with the azithromycin or the ethambutol, by the time we start the rifampin, those have typically gone away. And 
I, I generally feel very confident in telling patients that we're going to be able to get them on a regimen they can tolerate it. And it may just involve uh, certain strategies of how to take the medications. A lot of my patients do best if they take all three medications at night before they go to bed. Um, some patients take their azithromycin and ethambutol in the morning and they take their rifampin at night. So just knowing that there are different strategies and it's really what works best for a any specific patient, what they're going to tolerate the best. Now, what about the ethambutol, Wendy? Do you tell patients to take that with food or without food? I tell them ideally that if they can take all of them on an empty stomach, that that's ideal. But really mm -hmm. the one that's most important is the rifampin. A lot of patients, you know, once again, doing the cracker strategy with the ethambutol and the azithromycin can really take the edge off. But I think uh, the most important one really to take on an empty stomach is the mm -hmm. rifampin. And I think that different providers probably have their own styles of conveying this information to patients. I tend to not only talk to patients about the timing and the strategies for taking the medications, but also I give them a printout just to sort of summarize everything that we discussed when the to take the medications. And so I don't know if you if you do something similar in your clinic. Yeah, I absolutely do. It's all in writing for them so that they know exactly how to troubleshoot their side effects, all of that in writing, plus they're hearing it in clinic and now they can listen to the podcast so they can I think that the, you know, as much information as that they can have. And then once again mm -hmm. having that, I like I said, I always request that they if they can to bring another set of ears. I think all of that helps. And also making sure that the treatment and the details of the treatment and the timing and medications and so forth get conveyed to their primary care provider as well. And so oftentimes what I'll do is I will uh, make sure that I either send my note directly to the primary care provider, um, or I actually print out a note and give it to the patient to bring to their provider, only because a lot of these medications, as we've mentioned, do interact with other common medications. For instance, rifampin can interact with statins, for instance, and, and many older Americans are on statins. Um, same thing for, let's say, Synthroid um, or levothyroxine. Uh, many older patients are also on that. And so it's important to keep track of, of uh, which medications the patients are on. Yes. And in many cases, um, I've had patients on anti-epileptic drugs where I've reached out to their neurologist and we've actually had to you know, switch their anti-epileptic medication for the duration that they're on MAC therapy, for example. So, so sometimes it's a bit of a negotiation with other physicians. I, same thing with cardiologists. Um, you know, other drug common drug interactions include patients who are on long-term anticoagulation. So, um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we can't use rifampin, although that's a little more unusual. What I really try to communicate to some mm -hmm. of these other mm -hmm. subspecialists too is to say, look, we don't necessarily have you know twenty different options for our patients' regimens. So, um, if we can come up with a an alternative approach. Uh, for treatment of this other underlying issue, you know, it's it's really just trying to to work collaboratively with the other physicians. Um, you mentioned levothyroxine and patients who have hypothyroidism. I typically do get 
a, a TSH within four to six weeks of starting the rifampin because a lot of patients do need adjustments in their thyroid medication while on treatment. Uh, patients who are on oral contraceptives or other hormonal therapies mm. that are estrogen-based or estrogen replacement, Good point. Um, that's a really important one because dose adjustments may need to be made. And the other thing... Um, patients who may be on steroids. So, you know, this probably happens to you a lot with a lot of your pulmonary patients, Colin, is patients who are on steroids may actually need an increase in the dose of their steroid while they're on rifampin. Yes. Yeah. The, they may have to be up titrated on the, their dose of steroid. So I think people are getting the, the idea is that there's just so many nuances um, and, and things that we really have to take into consideration when we're starting treatment. And that's why it's it's not that 15 or 20 minute visit in the clinic. It does take some time to really review all of the different aspects of, of their medical history, concomitant medications that they're taking to make sure that we're not going to create problems. We never want to create harm with our, our treatment for sure. That's right. And it's an, it bears repeating that it's so important for patients to communicate with their providers once treatment has been started, if he or she starts to develop adverse reactions um, or interactions with other medications that they're concerned about. It's a good time to reach out to your provider to discuss that. When do you see patients after you start them on treatment? Like when is that follow-up visit? So I typically, my, my practice is typically to see them four to six weeks after starting treatment. But I t what I tell them to do is to send me a note through the patient portal, an electronic communication so that I can keep track of, of their progress uh, after starting treatment. And so I generally tell them to, to check in with me weekly when they start the treatment. So at the end of the first week of starting the ethambutol, for instance, the following week with rifampin, and then lastly, the week of azithromycin to let me know sort of how things are going. And then usually at week four, five, or six, we see each other back in clinic to reassess and see how the, uh, the regimen is going. Yep, that's that's exactly what I do. I um, I ask them to uh, reach out to me through the patient portal, but I also, right around week two going into three, I have my nurse or one of my MAs actually call them and just make sure that they're doing okay and that they're not trying to quote unquote, get it out because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, it's a critical time frame as they're adding on medications that they, they may be struggling at that, that point and they need a little extra support. But it sounds and like you and I have very similar practices that way. And, we do. And, then, and the last thing we want is for the patient to come in six weeks later and having lost 15 pounds because they were trying to tough out the side effects of- Exactly. Uh, yeah. Once again, vulnerable population that we want them to gain weight, not lose weight. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say is that as patients continue their medications and as the weeks and months go by, patients do, many, many patients do start to recover weight that they've lost associated with the disease process and their appetite improves those night sweats go away. You know, there, there can be subtle markers, but you know, when we talk about monitoring at follow-up, it's not just laboratory monitoring. It's not just obtaining sputums every month or even an interval CT scan, you know, three months into treatment, for example, it, it's really all aspects of monitoring. How are they doing psychologically and, and also just really doing that comprehensive symptom review cough, shortness of breath, 
weight loss, appetite, sweats, you know, how, depending on what their clinical presentation was, are these things any better or are some of these things better? Can you, you know, quantify or qualify that mm-hmm. for us? Well, I certainly, I think we've covered a lot of ground in today's episode on treatments, and I hope that our listeners take away some valuable information. There's so much to talk about when it comes to treatment options. Uh, we honestly didn't even touch <laughs> on some of the other uh, the other possible medications that we might add on, such as Aricase or clofazamine. Um, I think it's those two are are worthy of their own episodes, as far as I'm concerned, just because. Yeah, even IV yeah. amikacin, for example, in patients who may have fibronodular disease, but also have cavitary disease. So yeah, I think that yeah. this warrants MAC two treatment episode. Absolutely, and we'd like to we'd like to tailor that episode to your specific questions. So, if you have questions about treatment, if you have questions about side effects of of standard treatment, or perhaps other treatment options like IV amikacin or Aricase uh, or clofazamine, then please feel free to reach out to us on ntmtalk.com, where you can also stream our past episodes and also leave comments uh, and questions for us to address on future episodes. We would love your feedback. So please, please reach out to us. And we really, if you have ideas for other episodes or if there are really uh, certain topics that you feel we need to address, we really want to hear from you. Is it too early to put in another plug for ntmtalk.com? Seriously, folks, if you have any questions, comments, if you have suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. We bring you topics that we think you'll find interesting, but ultimately we want to structure this podcast around your interests. Oh, and you know what I wanted to mention is that uh, Colin and I this week were talking about doing uh, an episode dedicated to COVID, which I know in many respects is the last thing people want to talk about. Mm -hmm. But quite honestly, I've been getting a lot of questions recently about uh, bronchiectasis, chronic lung disease, impact of COVID. Um, People have had a lot of questions. So just know that that will be an up and coming episode. That is such a timely topic, Wendy, and one that I get a lot of questions about, particularly about susceptibility to severe COVID complications, the type that end folks up in the ICU. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Well, thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you have questions or comments for us, again, please visit ntmtalk.com, where you can find past episodes of this podcast, as well as information and resources on NTM lung disease and bronchiectasis. We really look forward to bringing you another brand new episode next week. So until then, stay well, everyone. All right. Take care, everyone, and be safe.